0: This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For most of the history of the United States, a federal income tax was deemed unconstitutional. But the ratification of the 16th Amendment in 1913 erased that constraint with a single sentence. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Since 1913, taxable income has been understood to be money that is either earned through a paycheck or from profit earned from the sale of an asset. But the U.S. government is challenging that interpretation of income, taking its case, Moore v. USA, to the Supreme Court. In oral arguments heard last week, the U.S. Solicitor General asserted that taxable income may also be levied on the increase on the value of an asset regardless of whether the owner realizes any of the income from that asset. While the details of this case involve unusual tax provisions on American ownership in foreign companies, the principle at stake is whether income must be realized in order to be taxable. Such a shift in definition could redefine all appreciation assets as taxable income, inviting investors to face a tax bill long before a single cent of income is ever received. Could an adverse decision in the Moore v. USA case usher in a new regime of taxing appreciated investment, including assets such as a house, in the same way as realized income. My guest today is Tommy Berry, editor-in-chief of the Cato Institute Supreme Court Review, who co-authored an abacus brief in the recently argued Moore v. USA case. Attorney Berry has examined the legal precedents and constitutional history of the US federal income tax and has written extensively on the constraints the Constitution imposes on congressional prerogatives. Attorney Barry will share with us his views on the facts in the Moore v. USA case, the insight the oral arguments offer on the nine justices view on tax law, and the possible effects on American investors if the highest court redefines asset appreciation as income. When I return, I'll be joined by constitutional scholar, attorney Tommy Barry. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Selvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Hubwonk listener favorite and editor-in-chief of the Cato Institute Supreme Court Review, attorney Tommy Berry. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Tommy. Thanks for having me. All right, before we, uh, I'm going to surprise you with this remark, Uh, before we dive into our topic today, which is going to be about taxes and the Supreme Court's ruling about taxes, I want to congratulate you on your recent induction into the uh, esteemed ranks of the lawyers of the Supreme Court. I'm not sure what the title is, but uh, before we get started, share with our listeners what happened and how you were uh, fortunate enough to be among the the elite attorneys who can stand (laughs) there before the Supreme Court.
1: Oh well, you're you're overselling it a bit, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, uh, it it requires the arduous task of having been a lawyer for three years, uh, having two hundred dollars, and having two current members of the Supreme Court bar who are willing to uh, vouch for my character. Uh, so that was and filling out many many forms, and then when you do all that, you get an invitation to come to the Supreme Court uh, and be sworn in in person, which I wanted to do. I was eligible during COVID, but, you know, getting sworn in just through mailing a piece of paper isn't as exciting. So I I held out for when they started doing it in person again and just so happened to luck out that the date I was assigned uh, was a pretty big oral argument, a case called Rahimi about the uh, Second Amendment. And what's really cool is on the day you get sworn in, you get absolute front row seats. I was literally two feet, sitting two feet behind counsel table at the front of the Supreme Court. Uh, and my uh, boss and, and mentor, Clark Neely at, at Cato Institute, uh, gets to go up to the lectern and and personally ask the Chief Justice uh, to admit me to the court. And the Chief Justice makes eye contact with me and says, Mr. Barry, your motion is admitted. Uh, so I definitely recommend it. And even if you're never going to argue at the Supreme Court, which I certainly won't, I don't think uh, it's it's an experience worth doing.
0: Well, wonderful. Yes, we've had our, uh, Clark Neely on the show uh, to talk about Rahimi, so uh, great. You got a, an exciting front row seat to a very exciting case that we've talked about on the podcast as well. So we're gonna be talking about a different case today, um, one uh, called Moore versus USA, um, which recently, er, earlier this week, we heard oral arguments, a uh, familiar face, again, from Rahimi, there was uh, the Solicitor General, uh, Elizabeth Preloger, who's uh, becoming quickly uh, infamous in her skill as uh, arguing on behalf of the, uh, the US. Um, uh, but anyway, we want to talk about the, the facts. Let's, uh, let's start just basically, um, at a very high level, just to, uh, pique our listeners interest. What were the basic contours of the, uh, the case, uh, you've been part of an amicus brief uh, for this case. What were the, the, the facts in this case, um, at a very high level?
1: Sure. So this goes back to a political compromise in 2017, uh, shortly after President Trump took office. You know, one of his first big uh, legislative accomplishments was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, It cut taxes in a lot of areas. It reshaped uh, the way that foreign tax corporate taxes on foreign corporations that U.S. shareholders may own part of uh, kind of changed the way that system worked. There was concern mostly on the Democratic side of the aisle that it might cause too much of a short haul in tax revenue, especially in the short term. So as a compromise, they invented uh, a one time only. A very unusual tax that they called the mandatory repatriation tax. And it kind of invented a legal fiction that said for one time only for 2017 tax year and only 2017 tax year, we're going to tax certain shareholders who own uh, at least 10% of foreign corporations uh, as if they had been receiving dividends for the whole length of time that they've owned these corporations, going back years or even decades. Uh, so it sort of looks at what was the earnings of that corporation during whatever time that they held uh, th- that shares in that corporation and treated it as if they had made a profit off of it, uh, even if, in fact, they had not, uh, which is why I call it a legal fiction. And, and unusually, uh, it didn't look at just one year. It went back uh, for however long that they held ownership stake.
0: Okay. So we've got some facts in the case. We have a couple. I'll just introduce some, some more specifics. They, I think they invested about $40,000 in a firm that's in India. Um, I think they co-invested with a friend. They own about 13%, which clears that 10% or more uh, uh, share. Uh, as you mentioned, it's the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, and they sort of got swept up in this so-called mandatory repatriation tax um, but they had never actually received a penny from this company. They just essentially notionally their their the value in the in the firm had increased. Uh, I don't have that number in front of me. Um, but effectively, this is a, a tax in this case on the notional in, in, increase in their uh, the value of their assets, not actual income that they've received. So we're going to be talking a lot about income, what that means, about you know how it is that the government is able to tax us. The federal government is able to tax us. Um, So let's get a little history lesson here before, again, we dive into the facts more deeply in this case. How is it that the um, uh, U.S. federal government can tax our income? Uh, Again, I think our listeners might be surprised to learn that for the vast majority of our country's history, we didn't have a federal income tax. Where does that come from and how is that constitutional?
1: That's right. So during the uh, Constitutional Convention, there were many compromises. As uh, anyone with some knowledge of that history knows, many of the compromises were about big states versus small states. Uh, One of the fights was about, you know, the Congress, the House, and Senate, should one represent larger states more? Uh, The smaller states didn't really like that there was a U.S. House where the big states would have more representation. Uh, So they got a concession, a kind of what the framers thought was a a clever uh, sort of two sides of the coin uh, compromise, which was that uh, not only would larger states have more members of the House of Representatives, they would also have to pay more uh, in so-called direct taxes. Uh, Now, they didn't define what that term was, but essentially they said whatever a direct tax is, Uh, that that would be a portion among the states based on population, the same population formula that's used to uh, allocate representatives. So if at the time Virginia, you know, was three times as populous as Rhode Island, you would have to take three times as many direct taxes from Virginia as Rhode Island. Now what might immediately become apparent there is that that makes no uh, reference to the incomes of the various states. And not every state has the same level, average level of income, Uh, some states have much higher per capita income than others do. So it quickly became apparent that if an income tax is a direct tax, It wasn't going to be feasible to impose an income tax on the basis of income across the states. So to use a a modern day example, I think Massachusetts has the highest per capita income. I think uh, Mississippi might have the lowest, uh, but if they have roughly equal populations, you would have to, under this original rule, uh, take the same amount roughly based on their populations from those two states uh, with no regard to the fact that people are making way more money in Massachusetts. Uh, So the federal government tried to impose an income tax. argued that it's not a direct tax, Uh, but the Supreme Court in a case called Pollock in the early 20th century said, no, this is a direct tax. You do have to apportion it, uh, and therefore we're striking it down. And at that point, it became apparent that the only way to impose an income tax would be to pass a constitutional amendment that exempts income taxes from this apportionment requirement. The apportionment requirement effectively made it infeasible uh, to impose a federal income tax. And that's exactly what happened. The 16th Amendment, as a direct response to pollock was proposed was was enacted and ratified uh, and it exempts income taxes from the apportionment requirement and ever since then uh, we've had a federal income tax for that reason
0: okay so i think i'm I'm keeping up Uh, we wouldn't want uh, mississippi and massachusetts to pay the same tax uh per capita because it presumably uh we severely regressive meaning the poorer your state the harder that ha- tax would hit each individual uh member of that state so so until um the the 16th amendment that was 1913 i believe uh you know effectively it was it, it was untenable you, you you couldn't do it all right so now we're here we are 1913 we do now have the 16th amendment it's ratified um but the definition of income when we're talking about a federal government, because it's been carved out as a special category, um, has to be defined itself, right? What does income mean when we're talking about it as a special case in the 16th Amendment? Does, does it, uh, you know, what does, what does that word mean? Because I think it's going to speak to what we talk about in the Moore case.
1: Exactly. And uh, the Supreme Court has sort of uh, created a definition through case law, through a series of cases where the government has tried to push the envelope of the bounds of income and the Supreme Court has a few times uh, struck it down and pushed back and said, no, that doesn't that doesn't qualify as income. So the key seminal case is an early case called McComber versus Eisner. Uh, this is one where the federal government tried to impose taxes on essentially what would be called today a stock split Uh, this is where uh, you might own you know there might be a million shares out of a stock and each share is worth fifty dollars uh they institute a split now there are two million shares but each is only worth twenty five dollars so no one really owns anything more really the number of their shares they own doubles but the value of each share is cut in half But the federal government tried to nonetheless impose a tax when that happens, uh, basically tax everyone who owns Uh, stocks when a stock split occurs and the argument the government made is yes okay they aren't really gaining anything more in terms of the value of the stock from the split itself but it's a proxy or it's a sign that there has likely been growth in the company they own stock splits usually happen once a company's overall value has grown so much that the value of each individual stock has roughly doubled and then they do a split to kind of bring it back down to where it was so they said treating this as a proxy, we're allowed to tax stock splits because uh, it's a proxy for people who owning shares in companies that have grown a lot. And the Supreme Court said, even if that's true, even if this is a proxy, and even if everyone subject to this does own shares that have grown a lot, that's still not realizing income because until they get paid a dividend or until they sell it for a capital gain, they, don't, they haven't had any sort of benefit from this doubling. I mean, think about it, it could be that the company goes bankrupt the next day and then the shares they own uh, go to zero. So these are potential capital gains, but not yet realized capital gains and the Supreme Court struck down um, the, that tax. Uh, so that's really the foundational precedent that says you can't use things as proxies or you can't just treat wealth appreciation uh, as, if, as if it's income.
0: Okay. All right. So um, uh, so the bright line there is, again, though the government has tried creative ways to access money that has yet to be received, um, the real bright line seems to be that though your asset may have appreciated either through uh, proxy or some notional, let's say, stock market spot price or something, uh, it, you it's not your money. It's not income. It's not taxable until you either receive it or get control of it. Is, is that roughly the the line?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it
0: okay all right so now we we come to the moors which is it sounds like a pretty similar case whereby they have an asset it's in a foreign country uh company um and it, it's gone up in value um but yet uh they haven't uh, received this money now i i want to you know, I'll put a pin in this idea that often companies will retain earnings or, or you know, not distribute their profits or their earnings, uh, and and choose to do o- other things with it. But this company did produce a profit that they retained. In other words, they reinvested it. Happened to be, um, it sounded like a very good company that it helped uh, small businesses in in, in India. But uh, rather than distribute it to the Moors, they kept it. The value of that firm, presumably because of the the growth of the retained profits grew the moors didn't see a penny how is it that this there's any claim to the increase in the asset as as defined as income
1: so i would say that there are two there's one precedent and there's one other aspect of the tax code which the ninth circuit at least Uh, relied on heavily to say it's okay to treat this as as an income tax so the precedent is called Helvering versus Horst and that was one where roughly speaking a father um, bought a certain uh, instrument like a bond gave it to his son as the gift eventually uh, that came due the son received money from it and the question was whether the income tax could be then imposed on the father uh, rather than the son Uh, and the Supreme Court said yes it can be you don't have to literally receive cash money to necessarily uh, realize income. You can have other types of benefits, such as the benefit of knowing that your gift has essentially accrued, that the person you wanted to give the money to has now received their money. So essentially, uh, when someone gives a gift, you can tax the person who gave the gift rather than the person who received the gift. Uh, but still, so the the question and what some people have interpreted that case to mean is you don't have to realize income at all to be taxed that's what the ninth circuit said uh, when the moors challenged this case and challenged this tax and the ninth circuit rejected it but the alternate reading that i think is correct is that the supreme court was simply saying realizing can have broad meanings that it it refers to some sort of benefit but it doesn't have to be literal monetary benefit Uh, it can be an emotional benefit or some gaining of control or something like that so that's what makes it a little bit um more difficult sometimes to def- draw that line of what's realization, given that it's more than just taking in money. If it were just taking in money, it would be a very easy line to draw. And then the second precedent, not a judicial precedent, but a practical precedent is so-called subpart F of the tax code. And the MRT in some case sense was based on subpart F, but it ex- expanded it in an important way. So subpart F similarly taxed people on mere ownership uh, in foreign corporations, even if they didn't uh, distribute dividends, But importantly, it was only based on one year at a time. Uh, And so it was more plausible to say, as somewhat of a legal fiction, That ownership in that particular year uh, of a a stock of a company that was expanding was likely to go along with certain uh, increases in ability to control that company or ability to take advantage of that increase in in the value of the company in some way. Uh, What the MRT crossed the line that none had crossed before was treating accumulated increase in value back years or decades. Um, as as a legal fiction, as, as income. Uh, but the Ninth Circuit essentially didn't see a, a real distinction between subpart F and the MRT. Uh, so it said, assuming subpart F is constitutional, which the Supreme Court has never upheld it, but it's been on the books for 60 years, uh, assuming that's constitutional, they said we have to uphold the MRT. They said otherwise, if we strike down the MRT, this 60-year-old law is going to have to be struck down too, and we don't want to rock the boat.
0: Yeah, it seemed to me, and again, we're going to talk about that now, the oral arguments. It seemed both sides were worried that regardless of which way this goes, it's going to disrupt the past or the status quo, right? That that, that the status quo is at risk either way the Supreme Court argues or or, or, or um, decides. So let's get to the actual oral arguments. Again, I mentioned earlier, it was what I think is soon to be coming a legend, uh, Elizabeth Preloger, Um uh, who argued for the U.S. Uh, what was the crux of the U.S. argument here, given the precedents you described? What was sort of the essence of, of her argument saying, look, the Moors owe this tax?
1: I think she was very smart to back away somewhat from the more extreme position that the Ninth Circuit took. So when the Ninth Circuit upheld it, they essentially said, there's no realization requirement, and Congress, its it, the 16th Amendment allows Congress to define income however it wants. In other words, we as courts just need to back off and not draw any line. Uh, Prilogar, I think, very smartly realized that the Supreme Court isn't going to have an appetite for that, that that would essentially make the 16th Amendment a dead letter if there's no judicial enforcement of it whatsoever. Uh, so she somewhat hedged on whether this is realization or not, but she left the door open. And I think she probably thinks this is the more likely winning argument to say this was, in fact, realization, just under a broader interpretation of what realization means, that if you look at precedents Uh, or at least uh, practices like subpart F, this isn't really that different from it. And you can at least make some sort of stretch of a case, but still a case uh, that ownership in something that has appreciated gives you certain benefits um, that you can take advantage of that perhaps ownership of some of stock that has appreciated uh, could give you more leverage in negotiations. Or, or things like that. So in other words, I think she was arguing for a very broad interpretation of realization, but still keeping realization there as some line that, that the government can't cross so that the Supreme Court feels like it's at least not, you know, opening the door to anything and everything.
0: Well, I think in listening, again, I'm the, I'm the late person, you're the expert. Uh, I just listened. I didn't actually, I wasn't in the room, but it seemed like it was a, a colorful debate as, as to sort of, everybody seems to be an originalist now, and they were trying to debate whether um, income, the word realized was left out of the 16th Amendment, and there's sort of uh, a debate whether uh, that was deliberately left out, meaning it didn't have to be realized, didn't have to be accepted and others saying income you know the definition of income saying realized income is almost redundant no uh, income is an income mm-hmm. and realize well say more about this this debate and whether you think it substantially matters
1: i think it does matter i mean it is tricky because the the 16th amendment is pretty spare i do think that the more is the challengers uh, had some convincing arguments from things like dictionaries at the time and it often was um, in reference to realization, and I think you could just ask sort of, well, what's the alternative? What's the line besides income uh, that's meaningful, but that that goes beyond realization, especially if, if realization is defined broadly? I thought the arguments were somewhat frustrating in that there was a lot of sort of amorphousness between are we arguing for a very broad definition of realization or are we arguing that realization um isn't isn't a line and that you can somewhat go past it uh, but either way it sort of comes out it sort of comes out the same way and that I felt like the government was saying either way uh it's it's a very wide latitude but it's not an infinite latitude um importantly you know saying we're not you don't have to worry about your opening the door to a future wealth tax or a future you know property tax on every house anyone owns
0: well, again, then the the oral argument went into these sort of scenarios, which I was very sympathetic to these arguments which say, okay, you know, if if we sort of either throw out or define broadly realized or say that it's almost superfluous, um you know, I, I don't know how that would work in that we all well perhaps not all, but we all make money from income. Uh, and we also make money from investments or the appreciation of our investments, our house or something like that. Um you know, I uh, you know broadly speaking, we don't pay income or um, capital gains tax until we earn the money or we sell the asset. Uh, you know, I think our listeners will relate to the fact they may own a house. Uh, they may have bought it for a million bucks. Uh, ten years later, they sell for two million bucks. They know they're not paying you know one hundred thousand dollars worth of appreciation tax every year. Uh, they, you know, essentially don't pay that till they sell the house. Um, you know if if the moors or or this this case is is ruled in the way it seemed you know the, the judges the justices seem sympathetic to, um, wouldn't this open the door to uh, the uh, taxes on you know notional uh, income that that isn't realized is just the appreciation of an asset? Mm-hmm.
1: That's definitely the concern. And one thing to stress is that there's a difference here between federal versus state or even local. And we do sometimes see, especially local, you know, property taxes at the local level going to pay for public schools and things like that. But it's always been an important distinction that those are set um, by governments at the local or state level, which are more connected to each individual taxpayer. So you don't have the concern of, you know, the national government. Um, imposing taxes on a bunch of rich people in one state because voters in some other states wanted to do that. So, to the extent that we have property taxes currently, they're a little more democratically justified or there's that protection of only being at the local level. Um, so it would be an entire seat change to if we suddenly had the equivalent property taxes like the kind you pay to for public schools now being imposed by the federal Congress nationwide. I do think the Supreme Court is, is concerned about that, and they seemed like they were looking for the solicitor general give them some kind of line to reassure themselves that they're not opening to the door to that which is why i lean towards the view that they're not even if they do uphold this law which perhaps they're leaning towards they want to they seemed like they were looking for some way to uphold it while keeping that realization argument and saying this was in some way realized even if you kind of have to squint a little bit to see it
0: well, that's that's a bit reassuring. Uh, again, um, I like to ask these questions because, uh, as uh, as I've started to study the Supreme Court a little more, I realize it's not just nine faces. Uh, the, each justice sees the world very, very differently, and the law very, very, very precedent very, very differently. Did you see in the back and forth of the oral arguments? Uh, any clear divide between sympathies, you know, it, it, through what we traditionally think of as left and right, uh, you know, a Republican appointed justices versus Democrat. I think, I don't know who you would consider farthest right, uh, maybe Thomas or Alito, and farthest left, certainly Sotomayor, uh, were, were the nature of their questions um, A, informed, and B, sympathetic to one side or the other.
1: Certainly, certainly, uh, Justice Kagan and, and Sotomayor were particularly, uh, you know, concerned about striking down a lot of previous precedents and, and striking down the notion of would, would Subpart F have to fall and, and things like that. And Justice Kagan, there was one amusing moment. Justice Kagan is the only former Solicitor General herself currently on the Supreme Court. And she kind of came to the defense of the current Solicitor General at one point when some of the more conservative justices were pushing her on the fact that she refused to explicitly kind of disavow the constitutionality of anything in the future. Justice Kagan said, well, isn't it literally your job to potentially defend whatever the government does in the future? So we can't really hold that against you because that's you, you would have to come back and defend any law that was passed in the future. Uh, so in other words, Justice Kagan making the point that is correct but ultimately the court has to bear the responsibility to draw those lines you can't ask you can't expect the government's lawyer to draw concessions about what the government can't do uh, in the future among the more right-leaning justices there was definitely a split with a few justice Lito ex- especially were extremely skeptical and focused on the potential negative effects of, of opening the door to un- taxes on unrealized income um, i felt that others like uh justice Gorsuch were really looking for looking for some kind of compromise um, And Justice Gorsuch even suggested, well, given that the Ninth Circuit didn't treat this as realization, could we even send it back? Could we remand it? Could we say you do require realization? But since it wasn't really briefed, focusing on that as much, do we send it back for the Ninth Circuit to decide whether, in fact, there was realization here after we tell them that you need to find that to uphold uphold the law? So a lot of justices put very different um, possible outcomes on the table.
0: Uh, For me listening, again, as a layperson, it seemed to me that justices, or maybe the, the argument or the whole aura of the thing, I don't think people sort of understand the notion of of either retained profits or earnings that, you know, I, I would use an example, very simple example. Um, you know, if I have a stock that's worth $100 and, and that, that share earns $10 that year, the company has a choice. It can distribute it as a, as a uh, dividend. And then I get it, and I spend it. I get income tax, or they retain it uh, and build a new factory with it, right? And then, in theory, my my share instead of worth a hundred now it's worth one hundred and ten dollars. And someday the government will get its money um, when I sell that share. But ultimately, though my share has gotten more valuable, I don't pay any tax. That's kind of how it works, right? Um, and that's how it's supposed to work. Do you, do you see like there seem to be nobody sort of grasping the idea that there's a value in you know leaving these. Uh, earnings or profits in the hands of those creating the profits so as to you know say mm-hmm. compound those profits did did you did you see any tension there that seemed an uninformed view or entirely legalistic rather than frankly an accounting question
1: right well this can be obviously one of the frustrations of legal cases and legal argumentation is that sometimes you do kind of focus down on the uh, the trees of the legal question and miss the forest of you know would this be good policy or not now you know the supreme court to its credit knows to somewhat stay in its lane and its lane really is just the legal question the constitutional question but i do think you're, you're absolutely right that that as we're discussing this case we certainly shouldn't lose sight of the policy issues the problems as a policy matter that come from jumping into that process early, you know, taxing people before they've actually realized um, anything from it. I think uh, the Supreme Court, you know, they will often be self-deprecating when any case comes up about how they're not subject matter experts, whether it's tech, whether it's business and and so on. And, and that's true here. So um, to some extent, it's, it may be a bit disappointing, but it's not surprising uh, that they mostly stuck in their lane to history of the 16th Amendment, the, the language and, and the precedents they have to work with and so forth.
0: Again, yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I, soapbox alert here. I think I, w- I worry that um, if we start taxing um, notional increase in value, A, it's very hard to assess, right? Like a wealth tax, how much is your house really worth? You don't know until you actually sell it or your company that, yeah, we can we can guess. And that's why we have a stock market. But just as the stock market fluctuates moment to moment, the actual value of a company doesn't, you know, it's just, you know, it's imagined uh, until it's all ultimately sold. Um, uh do you see this sort of, you know, investors shaking in their boots or, or you know, like what what, what possible uh-huh. um, response, uh, you know, would it be a legislative response? You know, what, what kind of bulwark would we have against, let's say, suddenly saying to the government, sure, you know, if you think that person's wealthier, I think that the term they use from point A to point B or point, a, a moment in time to a moment in time, defining income as the difference between what you were worth yesterday and another day, that delta, right. Both in income and value of your assets is actual income. That to me like made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. What do you think about that?
1: Well, that's that's the concern is that if the Supreme Court opens the door, then the only uh, veto gate left is Congress and the President. Now, obviously, you would still have to pass the Supreme Court saying it's hypothetically constitutional to do X doesn't mean x is immediately enacted you still need to get it passed through the house and the senate and signed by the president um but that's still you know you can never predict which way the political winds are going to blow and and things get lots of popular attention especially more populist policies you can see a lot of uh Uh, popularity kind of snowball for it faster than you might think. So it certainly uh, is concerning. Now, I think you can still make a lot of good uh, policy arguments, as you're pointing out, to oppose that in the future. But certainly uh, from a legal perspective, you'd much prefer that the court uh, draws the line now. And I think uh, one point about this case is it's, I think it's actually good that this is a rather obscure law that they're deciding this issue under, because there would be a lot more political heat and that might be sort of um, obscuring things uh, if this ha- were happening over, say, and Elizabeth, President Elizabeth Warren signed wealth tax 20 years from now, uh, then, you know, every partisan in the country is going to be fighting about uh, about it and there might be more heat than light. Here at least we kind of have a little niche thing that most people didn't even notice in the Trump tax cuts. Um, and so we can we can be a bit more legalistic and go back to first principles. Without it kind of devolving into intense, you know, partisan fighting, like in say the Obamacare case.
0: Okay, so so let's let's spell it out. We can, um, I I uh, win, lose, or draw. You can't know. I guess this case will be handed down in the spring. Um, you can't know how they'll rule. I think it's a coin toss. Listening to the questions and trying to guess how they'll rule. I, I think what you suggested, and I think what uh, even uh, Solicitor General uh, Preloger you know, reassure the court that this ruling would be be very narrow. It wouldn't be broad sweeping. It would be just the facts in this case, which maybe makes it less useful. But let's let's play it out. What's the worst case for um, the Moors? What's the worst case for the U.S.? And, you know, what's the narrowest definition that could just, in a sense, leave us where we started?
1: Yeah, well, worst case for the Moors is is that they fully uh, adopt the Ninth Circuit approach. So the Ninth Circuit said no realization whatsoever. It's up to Congress. In other words, the the 16th Amendment almost, in my view, becomes an inkblot uh for for congress to fill in the gaps and uh it's just a political question that in other words as long as congress wants to say its income that's when its income i don't think the supreme court will do that but we saw the ninth circuit do that so it's not entirely out of the question Um, so that would be the worst case scenario for the moors worst case scenario for the u.s is that they do reach beyond just this this uh tax and they say you know what We've never uh, looked at subpart F, this the tax I mentioned that's been on the books for 60 years, but that doesn't really uh, make a lot of sense either. Uh, and they say, you know, we're going to set down a rule that any appreciation in tax held uh, can't be treated as income. And if that means that a likely challenge to subpart f in the future would succeed as well fine that's the line we're drawing i don't think they'll go to either of those extremes but those are both potentially on the table what i think they will do is uh, what i think they want to do as you said is rock the boat as little as possible Uh, have some ruling that doesn't affect any taxes currently on the books except maybe this one but also that doesn't necessarily open the door for any future taxes that would push the envelope further besides this one so in other words they want to either strike down or uphold this tax without really affecting you know that people have said or thrown out numbers like you'd lose a trillion dollars in revenue if other taxes like this were struck down and i think that's that's made them a bit nervous
0: or uh, on the flip side, um, realize trillions of dollars in new revenue if, if uh, it's broadly interpreted uh, in favor of USA. So, um, yeah, lots on, at stake. So we're getting uh, uh, close to our, the end of our time together. Uh, I hope we've piqued the interest of our, our listeners, both, let's say, the accountants among us, uh, uh, tax accountants, attorneys, but also just ordinary citizens, thinking, you know, you know, can the government go after my my investments? And ultimately, I think this sort of reflects a bigger, uh, disfavor, uh, for, um, investment earned, uh, so-called unearned income or, or, money made from other money. I, I, again, I'll get on my soapbox and say, look, I, I think an income from hard work is, is, is virtuous, but when we ultimately invest it's money that we've already earned. It's already been taxed. We can either spend it or invest it. And if you take away that investment incentive, we might as well just go out and, you know, blow it. You know, you, 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 Investment money is money that you you risk in order to you know make more money. You might lose it or you might get more money. I don't know why that's fallen so out of favor, um you know, it, but it has. So uh, this I think this case um, definitely uh, stokes those flames of people who perceive, let's say, the a sort of a Marxist theory of of value, the labor theory of value, which is it, money for money. Uh, money on money is, is sort of ill gotten somehow, uh, but I say the difference between the U.S. and our prosperity, and and either you believe the U.S. works harder, or you think investments, you know, make us wealthier. Uh, pick your pick your uh, pick your uh, adventure. All right, so we've run out of time. Where can our listeners who are now excited about this case learn more uh, about your reading, your writing, your uh, your amicus brief, and ultimately your 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 views on uh, the likely outcome of this case?
1: Absolutely. So you can go to my page and see all my writings at the Cato website. So I'm at cato.org slash people slash Thomas hyphen Barry. Uh, you can also, you, once you go there, you can search for for more and it'll it'll pop up pretty quickly. Uh, if you want to go to our amicus Brief specifically, it's at cato.org slash legal hyphen briefs slash more hyphen V hyphen United hyphen States hyphen one. So (laughs) probably just probably just Googling Cato more versus United States would uh, would be faster. Um, But either way, yeah, would love for people to go there. You can read kind of a 500 word summary of it at that page. And then you can click on the PDF if you want to read the whole brief.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. And of course, you're a very uh, avid tweeter on these topics. So uh, you keep us all sort of um, abreast of of what's going on uh, while we sleep. So thank you for joining me again on uh, Hubwonk. Tommy, you've always always a great asset and, and you make some dry topics come to life. You really are great at explaining complex issues to to lay people like me. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much, happy to.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. And of course, we're very grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future Hubwonk episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at Institute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.